When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert, Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville, Consequence of Sound, and the Consequence Podcast Network. Wherever you're listening from today, go ahead and hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review if you can do that as well. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today is a very special edition of the show. Three for the price of one. You're going to hear my interviews with Cracker, Blind Melon, and Dishwalla, three bands that all have ties back to the 90s. In fact, I'm going to start talking with uh, David Lowry of Cracker here about the 30th anniversary of Camper Van Beethoven's Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. We also get to talk about the 25th anniversary of Cracker's Kerosene Hat. And the record that came uh, two albums after that, the 20th anniversary of Cracker's Gentleman Blues. He also gives us an update on all the new music as well that we can expect from Mr. Lowry and all of his bands. After that, it's anniversary talk with Blind Melon and Dishwalla. But right now, Kyle Meredith with Cracker. David Lowry here. Hey, David. How are you? I'm good. We are going to hit the time machine, but uh, we're going to hit plenty of different years, so I won't concentrate just on one. So as long as you're you're good with heading yeah. back. Uh-huh. Let's start with um. I, let's start briefly with 1988, and, and I'm going to use that actually because 
Camper Van Beethoven, you, you all had just put out Our Beloved Revolutionary Sweetheart. It was the major label debut, and I'm kind of looking at that. One, because it's a big round number of 30 years this year, but also it started that major label relationship, which lasted almost mm-hmm. a perfect 10 years. <laughs> it actually lasted longer than that because we actually moved with Cracker. It actually moved. We were on, like a, there was a bunch of artists kind of like us that were doing one week's music that was sort of shuffled off into this specialty part of the label. So mm-hmm. we were no longer in the mainstream part of the label. Well, starting there, at least, you, you know, you, you guys, you got the big deal. And, and, and Camper Van Beethoven at that point, you know, when, when we look back, uh, that was actually, I think, a really cool thing because it couldn't have seemed like that band was a sure bet to take on to a major label at, at the time because, you know, there were so many different styles uh, you know, you were kind of a, a rough and ready crew or whatever, but uh, you know, how did that happen? And, and was it as surprising to you, or was that always the goal? It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the goal. I mean, when we started making the Camper Van Beethoven records, I mean, not even indie labels would really put our stuff out. I mean, we ended up on this super micro indie label called Independent Project, but like immediately we sort of outgrew that and we sort of formed our own label, right? So, um, I mean, just even having any sort of a record deal was sort of a trip to us because we just didn't fit with any of the punk or uh, burgeoning sort of indie stuff at the time. So we basically had to form our own label and have it independently distributed. Now, once we had some success, I mean, even after the first record, I mean, IRS Records was really hot right then. It had REM. It had kind of all the college rock bands came around looking for a deal um, from us, and we sort of pursued it, but it just kind of didn't go anywhere. So when Virgin comes around in 1987 to sign us, which is just only like another year later or whatever, you know, they were coming with like a lot more money. They were kind of a hot label. It just seemed like we could take what we were doing and sort of bring it to sort of a bigger audience. Because we we really felt like, you know, we were on to something. But specifically, there's a really great moment that just illustrates the music business in the 1980s versus the music business today. And I teach this in my music business class. I tell this story to my students. There was no big data. There was no, like, real market research. Just people signed things on their gut. And the transition from signing somebody to put out a record was so long, you know, you'd say like 18 months or something like that, that you had to sort of sign what people didn't know they wanted yet. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. Right? Totally. That's, that's and what... there's something fascinating about the music business at that time because it was very cowboyish, even at the major labels. So the story I heard years later from one of the vice presidents of promotion was the reason we got signed is because two of them from the label had some friend visiting from out of town up north or something and brought some mushrooms. <laughs> and two of the senior promotion people took mushrooms and saw there was a Camper Van Beethoven show at this old funky theater in downtown L.A. And they're like, oh, yeah, let's go see them. 
right? So they were on mushrooms. Meanwhile, we were hanging out at this old funky theater backstage, and there were some sort of like play props or something like that, like almost like jester or clown type costumes or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was really weird, right? And we had two friends from another band that were visiting us on the road. And so they kind of, they got these props, costume or whatever. There was white face sort of paint there. And they just sort of made themselves like, they put it all over their bodies basically and put on this sort of prop costumes and got their horns and then came out and sat on the top of the speakers, motionless. Like these old school stacks, right? right? This is just like a random thing they did. It's like, oh, let's freak everybody out, and we'll just play that little horn part that's in pictures of Matchstick Man. We'll play that guitar riff, right? Play that horn part. So apparently, uh, you know, audience comes in, including these senior promotional executives, and they're watching the show. And about thirty minutes into the show, we play pictures of Matchstick Man. Haven't been recorded yet. It's a cover. It was a goofy cover we did, and they come to life and play this horn part, right? And it's just like, apparently, it like freaked everybody <laughs> out, right? I remember the moment it happened, everybody's, whoa, this roar comes up from the crowd because everybody kind of assumed these were props yeah. on the speakers. They look really small from that height. I was told that is the reason that we were signed. That's amazing. Is because those executives were so freaked out and blown away by that. They got to sign them. And then it fits exactly with the timeline. It's like, it's probably the next week that we get the call, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's nice, you know, I mean, one of those moments of the universe, just putting everything together in the most warped fashion. But, uh, you know, thank but goodness it's, it's it did. Like, it's a completely irrational Right, band, right, which I love about that is like, I mean, it's a little like the Steve. Okay, it's a little bit like, uh, things like, like Steve Jobs and the iPhone. Sounds like I'm off track here, but remember when Steve Jobs did the smartphone? The smartphone was a failure. Right, but it had been tried by people like Palm and all this shit. These companies that went bankrupt and the shit never took off. The mm-hmm. consumer didn't like it. They wanted smaller, not more. They didn't want to look like a nerd and stuff like that. Right. So part of his genius was creating something that the consumer didn't know that they wanted, right? So the same thing like was happening in the music business then. And I, I see that that's totally absent now. Yeah. Now you look back through history. Why did people sign Captain Beefheart? Right. Why did they sign, you know, on Frank Sinatra's label, okay, by the way, isn't it? Reprise, wasn't that Sinatra's uh-huh. label? That was, yep. So we were really fortunate to sort of grow up in this time when there was no market research. It was all gut instinct, and we got this kind of crazy mis- sort of mishmash of music. I mean, think about like Devo being signed to a major label and putting out a record in 1978. That didn't sound like anything that had ever been on the radio before, even the talking heads in a weird way. It's like I remember hearing it. It's like, can that guy sing? I can't really tell. But you enjoyed it, so that's that's what you're right. But I enjoyed it, yeah. yeah you know what I mean? Like, P-52s, like, mm-hmm. what is it, 52 Girls? You know, just how almost atonal that song is. If you listen to it in retrospect, it's, like, really strange, right? Those are all examples of, like, just, ah, I think people are like it. They don't know they like it, but they, they like it. I, I'm actually going to take that as a jumping point to, to the next big anniversary with 1993, because... So camper van, you know, they've they've broken up and, and gone. Everybody's gone their way. You formed Cracker, and again, this is something that's against everything else that's going on. Not counting low, and and, and we'll get to that because that sort of did fit into the alternative picture at the moment. But 
But Cracker, even then, I mean, you guys were, you know, when I listen back, it's it's always easy to hear, you know, the Stones sounds, you know, kind of mm-hmm. drifting through there. But that was not what was mm-hmm. happening. And here you are again in a band that's sort of against what the mainstream culture is thinks they're demanding. Right. Uh, Kerosene Hat, 1993, is an Americana, country rock, sort of southern rock, British-style southern rock album that comes out at the height of grunge. It's completely improbable (laughs) that that would have been a hit. I mean, completely improbable. And, you know, low... I tell a story about uh, explaining the narrative fallacy to people, um, because when you look back on things, you put things in to make logical sense. I was a nerd in 19... 93 and so was everybody in the band and we all had email I actually looked back at what we were talking about when we recorded that album the song low wasn't ever considered a single really <laughs> we made that video at the insistence of the video director and again the same guy who took mushrooms uh-huh. at our show <laughs> we made that video at his insistence that wasn't planned as the single and then because just... it just didn't seem like it would go on the radio I mean, you had to tell radio stations that it wasn't a drug song, right? Like, you had to say, yeah, like, no, no, that's not a point, drug song. At one point, a senior executive, leave their names out of it, sent me, called me on the phone. I was like, wow, wow, this guy's calling, right? And I'm like, take the call, because I'm like, whoa. You know, this is a senior executive. He's like, very, very old school East Coast music business guy. And uh, he's like, now listen, that song, Low, you're, you're, I mean, you're talking about, you know, I mean, this is kind of like Greek mythological thing, right? You know, turned into stoned, you know, turned into stone, right? And you're not, and I was like, well, actually, but, you know, I started explaining. He goes, no, 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 wait a minute, listen to me. You, this song, <laughs> I, he has to try three times to get get me to say right. oh yes right. it's a mythological reference you're being turned into stone do you mind signing a letter stating that i'll fax you over something wow <laughs> and so i did yeah and i guess they used that to go out to the radio station and say no no, no he's not saying stoned i don't know yeah i can only assume that is what the reason for that was again <laughs> right there was a period there where something like Cracker and Camper Bay and Beethoven could just really go against the grain and the market research and the big data and sell records, mm-hmm. right? It's fascinating, well, fascinating time. You came, you know, so Camper having the, the level of, of success that you all did, you know, and I'll say sort of the college level of success, and then you had a hit with Teen Angst, you know, out of the gate. I mean, that was, I think, a number one modern rock record right there. When, yeah. When did you notice that Lowe was actually taking and it was bigger and this was bigger than the other things? W- was there a point where you kind of saw that happening? Uh, yeah. Uh, we got a call from somebody who said, you guys sold 5,000 records last week. And then it went from there. I mean, people don't understand the scale of like why uh, anymore, what a hit was, you know. Mm-hmm. 5,000 records, that's their album generated $50,000 last week. And then that goes on, goes up from there, and sort of stays there for a year. But it was literally just like one week, we just suddenly sold 5,000 records, and it just took off from there. And it wasn't really like that much radio play or MTV play yet. It just was, it was, that's, you know, it took like a week for everybody to figure it out, but they knew it. And it's really bizarre. <laughs> I, I mean, that's the way um, 
entertainment though has always worked like book sales are like that you know video sales are like that you go from like you know 100 a week or 200 a week to 5000 50000 right. you know you just start adding zeros when things take off right that's actually called a wild variation non gaussian variation but uh it's fascinating I mean, we never saw that coming. I mean, we didn't expect that. We we figured we were going to be like one of those semi-pet label bands that, you know, pet band for a record label where, you know, we probably break even for them, but, you know, we bring something to the label that makes the label like cool or interesting right. or something like that. That's what we thought we were going to be. We didn't ever expect to make money. Well, I'll tell you real quick though. Um, my, my first uh, that my introduction to that song wasn't the radio. It was uh, a compilation from Do Something dot org. Uh, I still have that compilation. I right. remember hearing that within that compilation set of songs, and it was the one that stood out. And still to this day, it's one of those that you know. I wonder if that that actually because I, I don't remember exactly when that came about, and I remember that that was. Given away, wasn't that given away with like a Taco Bell? Taco meal? Bell. Yep, that's right. So it's entirely possible, but that's what I love about music is you never can predict what it is that triggers something yeah. like to go viral. It's just fascinating. <laughs> but you know, that's, you would say that's viral today. Right. You know? Right. That's what we would refer to it. But that was the yeah. Yeah. A couple other it songs is. I'll hit on real quick too. Uh, you know, the, the the second single on that record, uh, "Get Off This." Um, probably made sense at the moment, and and of course I've lived with it most of my life, and 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 still enjoy it. But now when I look back at it and and try to remove sort of the context, I thought this is really one of the most uncracker songs that you guys have. Get off this. Yeah, like it's nearly a spin doctor style of song. When I look back at it right. now, it's got that really. I mean, Davy Farragher. I think Davy Farragher and his brothers and the Farragher brothers that was the bass player. You know that we grew up with, mm-hmm. and he plays on. He plays off and on with us, right? In Cracker, Davy Farragher. He plays with what is he? Elvis Costello's bass player now. Oh yeah. Him and his brothers were. Him and his brothers, I think, were the first white band on Soul Train. Like he's fourteen or something when he's on there. He's like a really good soul bass player, basically. And I just, I just saw the notes for Kerosene Hat. Um, unfortunately, all my album lyric organizing notes mm-hmm. stop in 1993 and i was like did i lose everything after this it's like no i remembered oh, that's when i got a laptop yeah. right <laughs> <laughs> so i saw notebooks i was looking at nine i was looking at the list of tracks you know tentatively titled tracks and ideas that we had for that album and get off this isn't on it so i assume that's just a pocket that we more or less made up in the studio mm. and turned it into a song that'd be the kind of thing is you know I'd be playing some chords, and Dave, Davey Lee, and Michael would, you know, come up with some, you know, there's, there's like a soul element to that, but like mm-hmm. sort of really then kind of played fast and alternative style or something like that. I don't know exactly, but yeah, um, yeah that that song was probably off the cuff, made up <laughs> in the studio, from what I can tell. Still fun. And uh, the other track I'll hit, uh, and quickly here, uh, Sick of Goodbyes, I, I didn't realize until just doing the research that that was co-written with uh, with Mark from Sparkle Horse, and, and, and I've always loved that song. Yeah, you know, um, when we were doing that album, going back to the, like, the email notes that I had, um, we had always kind of imagined that as the single, 
Oh, and, wow. and in retrospect, you go, oh, yeah, it didn't really wouldn't work, but it was a single for Sparkle Horse in the U.K. So, yeah, that's a track that collaboratively me and Mark wrote for Sparkle Horse, but, you know, they didn't have a deal or anything. So I was like, hey, I'm, do you mind if I cover it on our album? He's like, you know, he was actually our roadie for a while. <laughs> cool. Yeah, a lot of people... <laughs> Uh, like we would make him get up and sing Neil Young songs. There's actually a lot of uh, old YouTube videos of Mark actually singing like uh, "Why Do I Keep Fucking Up" or oh, right, right. "Rocking in the Free World" or mm-hmm. some Neil Young Young thing that would you, that's three chords that we could just play off the cuff, right? Anyway, so yeah, I put that on the album. And like sort of, and you know, Mark Williams was our A and R guy at Virgin at the time, and we both thought that was a single, you know. So it's still one of the yeah, standout tracks. How things works. Yeah, I yeah. love it. So, all right, back in the time machine. Let's head up to 1998. Uh, the Gentleman's mm-hmm. Blues Records. Um, you know, Kerosene had it's more iconic, but I find this to be the stronger album. Like, and I feel like it almost hurts to listen to it sometimes because I realize how good, how great this record is. And I don't think it was heard, was it? Like, it wasn't heard by the masses. No, no. I mean, just completely nobody was interested. I mean, you, you know, it's interesting about that album. That album is where, that album is just like where we sort of dispense with sort of any notion, really, that we're alternative, right? Yeah. We're just going to in the classic rock, roots rock mold. I remember uh, our manager's girlfriend at the time, Sue Sawyer, she was a big publicist. She's actually one of the women in the photo when Ozzy bites the head off the pigeon, the dove, who's recoiling in horror. Something great for the resume there, um, yeah. I'm in that picture. Right? <laughs> yeah, when she's like young, she's recoiling in horror in that famous photo. She, I mean, you know, sort of really truthfully how that out, you know, we always had a like batch of songs around, you know, and you sort of go, okay, what's sort of coherent from this? Pull it out, make an album, right? And, uh, yeah, she just sort of just said off the cuff, like sort of something like basically you don't want to try to compete like with alternative, like alternative rock and how hard it's gotten, how much it leans towards metal. You just need to go back and embrace your Rolling Stones classic rock route. And it's all over it. Right? I mean, you even invited, you've got two <laughs> of the heartbreakers on this record. Mike Campbell and Bitmont yeah. Tinter on this record, which is still like... And has, two of the expensive winos, too. Right. Keith Richards' band, right? Yeah. And Tommy Stenson while we're doing this, you know, LP. Yeah. I mean, it's a great guest list. For, let, let's start with uh, the, the heartbreakers, though. How did Mike and Bentmont uh, end up on the record, and, and exactly how involved were they? Well, first of all, Ben Mott played on our first album, plays on three or four tracks, I think. Plays on I See the Light. We just needed a keyboard for those songs. There were songs on our first album that seemed like they needed keyboards. Ben Mott and Don Smith, the producer, friends, going way back. And so he, had a, he came in like for three hours and played on like four songs or something, right? We like him. He's a hero. He's a master. But we get the gentleman's blues, and we're really now sort of focused on making this sort of just embracing our sort of classic rock roots rock kind of roots and it just you know we had a much bigger budget than the first album and so we just brought in like people that we thought would be great for this album and i think there's a song my life is totally boring without you it mm-hmm. actually is totally boring without ben Tench. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's really quirky and weird what he does, and he establishes this counter melody that just completely changes the song. Secondly, Good Life 
Johnny had more of like a lead that wasn't a riff, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. on Good Life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, for some reason the song wasn't really working. We had Mike Campbell down there and stuff like that. Like, oh, what would you play to this song? And he's just kind of warming up, and he plays that melody. Down, 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 down. Right? He's just kind of warming up. We're like, wow. I mean, that completely transforms that song. Just warming up, and um, that's the that, thing that we need. <laughs> yeah, that's what he plays. Right? And, you know, Don Smith, old school, you know, the late, he's the late Don Smith, actually. He passed away a number of years ago. But, you know, that, he's an old school engineer, so the tape machine is always running. There's no time that the tape, if things are not being recorded, you know. Mm -hmm. That's why you know, it's a little different way of doing stuff um, sort of died out. And so, you know, we capture all that stuff and everything. But, yeah, um, Mike Campbell and Demont Tench supply some key melodies and counter melodies to that record. You know, it doesn't sound like the Heartbreakers, but it's, you know, it's a version of cracker that maybe leans that way or whatever like that and yeah. they actually are fairly involved in it of course and then donnie uh, uh tommy stinson plays bass on the good life and he comes up with the thing that i think it's the good life he plays bass on yeah i'm almost positive i have to go back and look but uh either that or we brought davy farragher back anyway whoever plays bass on that completely changed the pocket on it mm -hmm. when they played bass and so we actually redo the drums on it to match it. <laughs> like, I, they actually put a different beat behind it. So, yeah, I mean, it's a super collaborative uh, album with sort of an outer circle of friends, you know. That's what, I guess, seems really fun about it, because I didn't know that, you know, all these years I've listened to it. Again, that's not something I realized until researching for this interview and now knowing like here it is just this great group of friends doing something very mm -hmm. comfortable you know just doing the record it's the most cracker record that you've probably done at that point no pressure just be yourselves and mm -hmm. and, and i think that's Over what makes it so strong like six months too yeah interesting right yeah i mean we just like forget that whatever was on the top of the charts then probably like uh, Limp Biscuit or something like that. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. There's no way we were getting close to that anyway, right? That's what alternative rock... People don't like to admit it, but that's what alternative rock was that year. You know? Right. <laughs> I listened to seven, the recording of Seven Days on the way down to Myrtle Beach because I realized I hadn't played it in a while, and I wanted to play it in that set we did in Myrtle Beach at the bike rally last weekend. Don't ask. Um, and so I listened to that, I was like, holy shit, like Don Smith, like, I mean, that recording of that is much greater than our performance, right? Mm -hmm. The recording of that is just masterful. That drum sound is amazing. And I remember that's uh, Charlie Drayton playing drums and I think Steve Jordan playing bass. So I would, I would put the recording of that song and that song up there, like, got to be in our top three tracks. It's you know, amazing. The great the, I mean, the whole album. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, and 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 I agree mm -hmm. that track too. It's it's just so good. There is a bit of a narrative running through it too because I, I don't know if you meant to do that or if that's just what happened. It seems like this is sort of on purpose, but when you've got words lines standing like the last rock band on the planet's uh, uh also the good life just being about what it's about and you know, the lines make you a star. I mean, is is it one character walking throughout that record? Yeah, it's sort of different alternate versions of, of me in the band 
or people like me that are in, you know, there's a transitional point in the music business, right? And that's a transitional point for me as an artist. So I'm getting super autobiographical and self-reflexive, not as self-reflexive as, say, Kanye West, <laughs> but um, <laughs> this, which is sort of his genius. <laughs> I don't mean that to be an insult at all, but uh, it's not quite as self-reflexive as that because I sort of invent other people that speak differently and sort of live differently than I do. But that's, yeah, I mean, a lot of that's about, yeah, we just started out with, so we were standing like the last rock band on the planet because literally we, you know, what was popular had moved so far away from what we really you know, could do well and what our vision for the band was and stuff like that. And we really did. We were really one of the last remaining rock bands on Virgin Records, you know, and it was dominated by like these English executives at that point who, you know, were super into pop music and maybe they should have been because they made a lot of money, you know, off things like the Spice Girls and stuff mm -hmm. like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we didn't fit in there. And so that's kind of, why we start with that song and and then it just sort of you know it's just it's self-referential you know it, ma it makes it that extra layer you know to dig into that's what mm -hmm. makes the great albums great is that you know onion skin mm -hmm. ability to it so you know I, I don't know do you do um do, do you pull out the live performances for special things is that one of them that you would consider doing you know front to back or, or are you thinking about doing anniversary editions for any of these is that part of the conversation at all well it's coming up <laughs> I like to keep a certain amount of surprise and right. things that are not announced. But what were the release dates of those two records? Uh, yeah, August for Kerosene Hat, and uh, yeah, right, August for uh, for Gentleman's Glee. Yeah, I if you notice, we probably will do. We've kind of done the Kerosene Hat tour, mm -hmm. but I think we'll probably do something special somewhere for Gentleman's Blues and. There may be some reissues. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Working on it. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll finish off heading back to uh, 2018, and, and I'll, I'll I'll throw just the broad question at you. Um, what's next? Because now it's I guess it's been a couple years, a few years for music from uh, either of your your main projects. Is is anything in the works at this? You guys planning something? I don't think there'll be anything this year. You know. Songwriting for a band like Cracker is largely a collaborative effort, which sort of requires people getting off the road and setting aside a good amount of time. I mean, not always, but it, it requires kind of a collaborative effort of writing music and stuff like that. And we really haven't done that because I wrote a dissertation to get my doctorate. Right. Congratulations. The last record came out. That was, Well, thank you. So that's sort of took a lot of my time. So any sort of songwriting that we have together, we don't we don't have enough to start anything yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like, if you notice, we did, uh, I did my solo record in 2000, between 2011 and December, last week of, the last two weeks of December 2014, mm -hmm. uh, my solo record came out two camper van beethoven records and a double disc cracker record it was so a five ton. Discs. yeah and i want to kind of do something like that again and i'm not there we're not anywhere near it on the number of songs and stuff like that and like i said writing a dissertation slowed 
throw this way down. There'll be something. I just it's just not going to happen this year. It's just I don't think so. I mean, again, I, I shouldn't be complaining, and, and I'm not because you did. You just <laughs> dropped so much all at once that. You know, there's there's right. plenty to listen to, and, and I'm having fun even uh, heading back to the classics, too. But, uh, you know, as a fan, it's always, okay, what's next? Gimme, gimme. That record's done? All right, when's the next one? So uh, I look forward to it whenever it does happen. I really do. Yeah, we're we're working on it. Though. Yeah, We're planning on it. Well, David, thank you so much. Uh, really, uh, this was a lot of fun, especially hearing about so many songs that have meant so much to me over the years. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> all right, bye. Big O thanks to David Lowry for talking about some Cracker albums as well as Camper Van Beethoven. Cannot wait to hear that new music he has coming out. It sounds like it's going to be a lot right all at once. We're going to move on to the second interview now. Blind Melon, 10 years ago, they got back together and released an album called For My Friends. It is the most recent record that Blind Melon has done. I got to catch up with Christopher Thorne to talk about uh, that record, what it took to uh, get the band back together after losing Shannon Hoon, and what it's going to take to get some new music out of them. It's Kyle Meredith with Blind Melon. Hey, Kyle, this is Christopher Thorne from Blind Melon. So what I'm excited to talk to you about, uh, I was looking back through the archives, and I noticed that uh, this year is the decade year for the For My Friends record. Which, uh, yeah, I just heard that. You know, I didn't, I didn't recognize that until my manager told me that the other day. I was like, oh, wow, that's a trip. <laughs> well, I, I'd like to kind of go back, uh, you know, it's not too far in the uh, down memory lane section, but to kind of look back, you know, because at this point, you know, for the band, I guess we can call that the, the, the most recent release. And in one sense, that had to be a big risk when you guys decided to come back and do that record. Did it feel that big of a risk when you were uh, in the middle of it? Yeah, it did feel like a big risk because, uh, for one, you know, Brad and I had, you know, we had built this recording studio and we were really busy as producers, you know, so it was it was a risk as in, like, we all had families at that point and, you know, we decided to, like, you know, take the hard road as opposed to the easy road, you know. The easy road would have just, you know, stay in our lane, be record producers, you know, we were making great money. I mean, you know, we took a pay cut to go make the For My Friends record, you know. Wow. So um, it was a risk, but it was worth it. And, you know, we never thought we would find somebody that, you know, that we could make records with again that felt like it did with Shannon. So for us, it was a, a risk that was worth it because it was uh, we were really excited about making a record again, you know. Well, I know it had been over 10 years at that point since uh, since Shannon had passed away. Uh, how long did it take for you to start wanting to do it again? Because I, I figure there's probably a little bit of time in finally deciding we're going to do it and when the record actually, you know, gets finished. You know what? It, it, it was, it came to us. It was, we, we never, you know, it wasn't as if we decided what happened is, you know, Brad and I, like I said, we're record producers and uh, Atlantic Records was like, hey man, we found this kid, his name's Travis, he's really good and will you write songs with him? We're going to make like a solo record. We're going to make you a solo record. So, you know, when Travis showed up and just absolutely reminded us so much of Shannon and then, you know, the reason why he came to us is he was a big fan of the band and that's why Atlantic Records called us. And so when, you know, when he started singing, it was just like, oh my God, dude, does this guy, you know, remind you of Shannon or what? So, and he also had his own thing in particular, especially like the songs that we were working on for his records. Like he had his own thing going on, but when he would sing those Shannon songs, it was like kind of mind-blowing, you know. He had studied those records so much, he was really a fan of the band and Shannon. So, 
that was the reason why we decided to do it. it. You know, it was like it came to us. You know, if Travis never showed up, we weren't actively going out and saying, hey, let's put the band back together. We had to convince the other guys, you know, because the guys were like, are you good? Because like you said, it, it was, you know, over 10 years. And we're like, hey, let's get the band back together. You know, it sounds like a Spinal Tap movie, you know. <laughs> and um, they were like, you got, you know, they were like, what? We, we found the guy. What? What? And um, I'll never forget, you know, Rogers, I think, was like, you know, everyone was busy doing other things. So uh, they flew out, and I'll never forget, we played two by four, and at the end of the first song, everybody was just like, yeah, we're in. Let's go tour. Let's do this, you know? So that's how it happened for us. You know, the Travis thing happened to us as opposed to us actively going out and making it happen, I, I would say. Now, that, that really is amazing because vocally, you know, there, yeah, there are plenty of similarities. You close your eyes, and if someone had said, no, oh, this is the long-lost Blind Melon record with Shannon on it, it's, it's believable, and that's to no discredit to Travis. Um, no. Yeah. It's, just, it's, just, it's just, you know, it's, and he can sing a lot of different ways. He has a one of the most wicked weapons, meaning his voice, that I've ever worked with as a record producer. He, he's literally, about, you know, his voice is unbelievable. He can do anything, okay. you know, but he was just so inspired by those records. And it's not just singing all the right notes with those songs to me, you know, because earlier after Shannon passed away, we did... Uh, you know, we tried some auditions and stuff. And you know what it was? It was like the spirit of the person was wrong. I know that sounds a little bit like a hippie, but, but you know, it was like you have to – not every person can sing those songs and deliver them with the emotion and the sort of, the, you know, the spirit that Shannon had, you know. Some of those songs are dark. Some of them are fun and all that too. But uh, but Travis was the first person that when he sang them, they those songs and the lyrics and the sentiments behind them all felt believable to me. That's the first time I'd ever heard anyone sing those songs. That made me want to go, yeah, okay, we can go out and play these songs for people again and make new music again. Were any of those other auditioned uh, singers anyone that uh, that we knew? No, you know what? Uh, I don't even know if I answered the question. You're asking me about like how long did it take me to to feel like I wanted to do it again. That was a great question, by the way. And um, it took me a long-ass time is your answer. And, and I, I got sidetracked, but what right after Shannon passed away, you know, we didn't know any better. We just didn't know what to do, so we just were like, we got we to gotta move on, we got to go on, we got to find a guy, you know. So Rogers, uh, like, talked to Rolling Stone, and this you know, pre-internet days, so mm-hmm. we put out an ad in Rolling Stone, and literally we had boxes and thousands and tens of thousands of, you know, back in those days, it was cassettes and stuff, you know, people sent us, to be the new singer, and here's the truth: I couldn't listen to one cassette tape because it was just too damn painful. Yeah, you know, yeah. Rogers would say like, "Hey, I really like this guy. Listen to that tape," and I just couldn't do it. I mean, honestly. So the band never happened back there. I just I was not ready. I think that was the, one of the questions you're you're asking. Oh, yeah, I just yeah. wasn't ready. It took me many years to answer the question. It took me many years. It took me until you know until meeting Travis that many years later where I finally felt good about going out and doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, it was so painful to me. There were times when I'd be on vacation with my family in a hotel and I would just have a moment because, you know, hotels remind you of being on the road, you know. And that's the last time I ever saw Shannon was in a hotel, really, you know, in an in a elevator in a hotel. So, you know, things like that would just be so painful for me, even 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 when I wasn't on the road, even when I was just, like, hanging out with my family in a hotel. I'd be like, oh, God, I have to get out of the hotel. It's driving me crazy. Bringing back bad memories, you know. And then for some reason, when Travis happened, it felt good again, and it felt like it just felt good to play those songs, and I didn't have those feelings anymore. So, so going into this record, then for my friends, there's that line right at the beginning of it that summer's come and gone, and winter needs a song, and I guess I'll keep moving on with the song I have in my head. 
musically, did you all want to address the past? Was that part of the conversation? No, no, no. I, that's just, um, you know, that's just, that's not something we like discuss. Like, hey, we should address it. Obviously, I had written a song. Um, that song in particular that you're talking about, I absolutely love. And Rogers and uh, Travis wrote that. I think that might be one of the first things that Travis wrote on. And uh, like Rogers sent in like the guitar stuff one night, and literally by the next like morning, we woke up and Travis was like, "Oh yeah, I wrote this." And we were like, "Oh shit, it's on," you know. Like for my friends, that actual song was like one of the first songs written. And when I heard that, I thought this could have been on the Soup record. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I was like, it's it's on. Fuck, holy shit. You know, it's on, you know. But yeah, I just felt, you know, when I heard that song, I thought, oh, okay, we're really on to something here. This feels like something. It feels like the next, you know, the next record for us. Yeah, well, that's why, you know, it, it does feel like it was the next record. And it was the next record, obviously. Uh, you know, but... With the next record, I don't know, sometimes it's just jamming and you find a groove and everything, and that becomes the music, but there's the other side of it. Like, do you remember where you were yourself musically, like your style, what you were trying to get into, what you were trying to convey with that record? You know, you know what's wild? By then, I had just produced so many damn records, so um, a part of me kind of went back to some of our older records and almost had to restudy who I was, because I had been quite a chameleon, because I had played on... I usually play in everybody's records that I produce, so that was a different process for me than being the guy in Blind Melon, the guitar player in Blind Melon, you know, so, and I had been doing that for over 10 years, kind of jumping around, playing, you know, this way for this record. I was really good about kind of morphing myself and, and making a guitar part that worked for the record as opposed to me just trying to be Christopher Thorne, the dude from Blind Melon, here's my guitar list. So in a weird way, I kind of went back and studied my old records when we started making that for my friends' records. You know what I mean? I had to, like, listen to, you know, how I used to play and stuff. But I had always, I never stopped writing, so I still had a lot of things around, you know, that were still reminding me of Blind Melon songs, you know. And I had written a song called Last Laugh, maybe for no reason. I just happened to write it about Shannon a few years before we met Travis. So, you know, when we met Travis, I was like, okay, well, I, I did write this one about Shannon. So and that, that's one, another one that we worked up and stuff. But I was always kind of writing. So I just kind of went through and kind of found the songs that I just felt like they were right for for the Blind Melon record. Well, it, it was a fantastic record. It is a fantastic record for my friends. As I say, you know, at 10 years old now, it's also the most recent. Will, do you guys think there will be another Blind Melon record? And, and does there need to be? I don't know that there needs to be, but you know what? We're musicians, and we go forward, and we make records, and that's what we do. And it's up to other people to judge us whether or not we should be <laughs> be making them or not. You know what I mean? But I do, yeah. In the end, you know, in the end, it's like this is what we do, so we are still going to do it. Even if we suck and fail at it, we're still going to do it. Uh, but I have to say, and I know every band says this, I feel like we're writing the best songs of our career right now, even though it's <laughs> late in our career. I, I actually do feel that. And um, uh, I just, this weekend, I've been mixing a... Uh, 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 the new single or the new song, I can say, and that's single. the new song for the next Blind Melon record is uh, we've been writing a bunch, so and we have a song and a video done, so we just mixed the song last last night, actually. Wow, no, that that's really exciting. Do you know the timeline yet, or is this just like working as you can as you go? You know what, the timeline we're kind of figure out. I mean, we cut we cut uh, in December. The guys all came out to Los Angeles. I have a recording studio here in Silver Lake, and. Um, they came out. We cut seven or eight songs. I think we cut eight songs. So we're we're deep into it, and uh, you know it's like the drums and bass and things like that are done on about eight songs. So we're just kind of finishing them up. 
so timeline wise no i don't have a timeline but i wish i i wish i did i mean i'm i'm dying to do it i mean this is all i do so i've been i've been excited to to write you know uh for the next by mel record and everybody's been writing stuff and it's been really great it's been fun awesome and so in the meantime, no, i wish i had a timeline yeah i was gonna say in the meantime you you, you guys still got shows coming up you're, you're still doing uh little little spots here and there right yeah Doing little spots here and there, and then trying to figure out some sort of like longer term tour. You know, we just did like uh, a full, like, you know, a week in a row, which we haven't done in a while. Normally, we kind of pop out and do the weekend gigs because other people have other, you know, jobs and stuff that they do. But we just did a week, and it was so fantastic. We had such a great run. So, we're going to try to figure out something in the fall. So, we're not sure if we're going to like release like an EP in the fall or. You know, these days people release stuff so differently, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it's like, oh, you release a song this month and you wait two months and you release another song. And, then, you know, people release things so uniquely, I should say, in this, in this new atmosphere of, of the music business. So we're just, you know, trying to figure out the best way to release it. Awesome. Well, uh, Christopher, I can't, I can't wait to hear it. And uh, until then, I can say again. Happy birthday, congratulations, happy 10th anniversary, whatever that is, to, uh, to all my friends. Because, yeah, it's a great one. I, I appreciate that a lot, man. I really do. Well, and it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, hopefully we'll get to catch up when the new music arrives. Awesome, man. Well, good talking to you, too, man. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man. It was a pleasure. Okay. All right, I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. Take all right, care take care. Bye. Bye-bye. My thanks to Christopher Thorne of Blind Melon. Looking forward to their new music. And for the final in the 90s era trilogy right here, J.R. Richards from Dishwalla. He's not in the band anymore. They're still a band. they got a new lead singer these days. But I gave him a call to talk about Dishwalla's second album, And You Think You Know What Life Is About, which happens to celebrate its 20th anniversary this year. We also talk about their inclusion on the soundtrack to the movie Avengers. It's not the one that you're thinking of, but a widely panned movie that came out in the late 90s. And then uh, J.R. Richards tells us about his working with the uh, music for How I Met Your Mother and Baywatch these days and a scoop on two new solo records. Kyle Meredith with J.R. Richards, formerly of Dishwalla. Hey, Kyle, it's J.R. How are you, J.R.? I'm doing well, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for calling. I, I, I want to talk about uh, the second Dishwalla record, which I feel like probably doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> as much attention as definitely the first one. But I was noticing that, uh, and you think you know what life's about, is turning 20 this year. I don't know if you – do you pay attention to the uh, to the anniversaries as they start creeping in? I do. I do. I don't – I mean, I, I, I try not to think about it too much because um, I'm always so surprised that it's been that long because it doesn't seem like it was that long ago. Well, let's figure it out because this record – you know, it becomes its own important thing because this is the one to follow up a hit record. You know, Counting Blue Cars have been such a, a huge hit. I mean, you, you ended up getting a couple, what, a Billboard Award on that one. And I think I saw something like a, an ASCAP or BMI, like most performed song of the year. But this is to follow up a hit like that. What pressures went in on this record as you were heading into the uh, heading into this one that you remember? Oh, well, I, I do remember um very specifically because it was a tremendous amount of pressure and you know being the main songwriter it was a huge weight on my shoulders i mean certainly i put it there upon myself as well as you know uh, now you're getting all this pressure from the label you know which wasn't there the first time because the label was already very happy with the songs that we had brought to them so there was no pressure in putting those songs together but now there was um you know coming from a successful record and of course they want to keep that momentum going because they just made a tremendous amount of money so <laughs> let's let's keep this going you know jr where the hits at you know they basically wanted 12 you know 10 or 12 counting blue cars so yeah that's 
that's a heavy-duty amount of pressure. Yeah. Now, how did the band handle the success when it did happen? I mean, it, were, you know, did it feel like this was a comfortable glove for you all? Did you take to it easily? Some bands do, some bands don't. No, I, I think we took, we, we took it pretty easily. I mean, I, I, we're all pretty grounded guys, and certainly if somebody's getting a little too big for their shoes, usually somebody's right there to knock them back down to size. So I, th I think we handled it pretty well. And I, and I also think that a, a lot of what was going on was not, we didn't really notice, I think, because, you know, when you're when you're in a tour bus or a van, you know, for years, you're, you know, you're kind of living in a time machine. So you would you would step out. I mean, I, you, you start to notice that you're playing bigger venues and, and or opening for, for bigger artists, but really your daily chores don't really change. So it's hard to gather how big. And I remember, you know, you had a label people going, you have no idea how big, you know, this record is going or how this song, how well it's doing at radio or it's blowing up in this country. And you just kind of go, yeah, 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 whatever, because they're always kind of blowing smoke to a large degree. So, um, you know, but they were right. It really was a big deal. And in hindsight, I, I can see that. But at the time, um, I don't think we noticed as much. So therefore, I don't think we were really got too, too caught up in it. Now, now, you've got, you know, as they say, you've got all the time in the world to make your first record and then to have that success happen and, and here the label is saying, all right, it's, it's time to do another one. What was, you know, with, with that pressure being on you, how was the writing going into, uh, to, and you think you know what life's about? There's pro you probably use a shorter version of that when you're talking about it, don't you? It's funny. Yeah, we just use the acronym on it, A-Y-T-Y-N-W-L-A, because your hand starts to hurt after a while writing that one out. But it's actually a phrase from one of the songs, and I think it's from a song Scott wrote once in a while. But And I think that kind of pays homage to the whole idea that, you know, when we did get finally get to that point and the reality of, of that this is a business now, not just fun, sets in is that, you know, that idea that you think that you think you know what you're doing, but you don't. Yeah. <laughs> and so that I think that's where the Adams album's title certainly for me kind of comes from. But yes, the writing for the second album, you have your all your whole life up to that point to write that first record. And then the second one, you have months. And, and it's, it's difficult to write on tour because, uh, you know, for me, I was constantly having to save my voice. So it was difficult to sit and with a guitar and, and sing things out. So I had to do that sparingly. And whenever we did have any kind of you know week off or anything like that, the other guys would all take off generally. But I would usually sit at home on the piano and see what I could come up with. I did, you know, and I did get have, have a pretty serious bout of depression at that time too because I was under so much pressure. And I wrote um, one of the songs, one of the first songs for the album until I wake up was all about handling and dealing with that pressure of, of the only time I really felt like I could relax was when I was finally have to go to sleep at night. That song, by the way, that, that had, do I remember it had started as a B-side on the Counting Blue Cars uh, single? Right, I, I'd written it uh, early on, so um, after the first album, so it ended up making, because Counting Blue Cars didn't get released as a single until mm -hmm. maybe six months after we finished the record or released the record even. So, yeah, it ended up being on, on the, the CD single as a B-side. I've always got to... Um... I don't know, some kind of affinity for uh, the sophomore records because I was. it's interesting knowing that, you know, the band's back is against the wall in, in a sort of way. Even if it's a super successful record, your back is against the wall. And if it's not, you know, then you've got to worry about being dropped or something like that when you look back at all that. And there's something about that sophomore record that's always been, I don't know, sort of romantic in my eyes because it's like the prove-yourself moment, you know, and um, 
and 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 you just hear all these great songs all over this record to show that you know it wasn't a fluke which is gonna be nice when you look back oh well that, that's nice to hear i i think that you know the, the record was kind of rushed i think there was a lot of second guessing going on about how we should make the record we, we went a very traditional route the first time with um the butcher brothers and I think that we, gosh, you know, from everywhere from our label, we lost our A&R person too. Mm-hmm. And which, you know, I think he was very, a very critical part of making sure things stayed on track. And, you know, we didn't go with our producer from the first album. We didn't record it the same way. We built a home studio. We, we got a producer that was very avant-garde and maybe much less known than a lot of the producers we were looking at. And we did a lot of the recording ourselves. So, you know, a lot of it felt kind of rushed to me in a lot of ways. Um, but it's nice to hear that, that you, you enjoyed the record. Yeah. <laughs> well, the interesting... we, we got paid up a bit. Sorry, well, I know it didn't. Uh, it ultimately didn't have the impact uh, as Pet Your Friends, um, you, you know, when it, when it came out. And I don't know, because when you're when when you're working and, and you've got, you know, maybe a multi album deal, I don't know how it was set up for you, but. Yeah, you know, I don't know. Was it felt at the time when you came off like, man, that didn't work as well as the first one did, or was it just like, you know, the work finishes, the tour finishes, and you get back in your horse and you get ready for the next album? Yeah, I don't think there's really time to think about it. I mean, we we did the best that we could at, at the time, and we had, you know, I think we made a great record. It was much more. It was it was very different from the first record, and I, I guess that was a big part of that thought of let's do something different. I, th- I think probably went against the, you know, the label hoping we would do something very similar. So we did spend a lot of time playing songs to the label and them going, mm, we don't really feel it yet. So, you know, that, that was, that was difficult. And, and the only other big issue was that it turned out to be the big issues. I think about a day after we released our album, our label basically was bought and sold. So, and uh, we didn't know, I think a lot of people, the label knew it. Um, so there really wasn't at all the same kind of push that we had on the first album, unfortunately, just because there was no money or personnel there to really do, do the job. Man, it's, just, it's, it's such a sad story when you hear that about, uh, about bands, about albums. You know, some of the great albums in history sort of lost just because regime change. You know, it's, the art doesn't get heard. Uh, as much as it used to. You are right about that. A lot of, of some of the best bands in the world that nobody will ever know about because of, of regime change or something that happened to the label, so they never cut their opportunity. Now, on the sound, you were kind of talking about it a little bit a minute ago, not sounding like the first one. I do find it interesting to, to sort of A-B the two records because uh, Pet Your Friends, it sounds a lot like what we were hearing in 95 and and with what life's about really sounds what how music had started to sound like in 98. It had become thicker, uh, chunkier, uh, and, and those sounds are heard. I mean, you, you know, you're always a rock band, you know, and you always had big, chunky songs, but there was something bigger about this record in the production. Did you go into the songwriting thinking like, okay, this is the way music is going and we want to take it, or is that sort of just part of the you know, the coincidence of the, uh, you know, the zeitgeist in the era? That's a good question. I think that it, you know, especially when you write a song and you bring it into this group of guys, and we also had a, a new member in the band too on the second record, um, Jim Wood is now playing keyboards, you know, and, and so you have a lot of different personalities and guys that are hearing it being a certain way and all being influenced by different things. So I, I'm sure, you know, and you, when you're immersed in the music industry too, you are hearing other bands doing interesting things that you haven't heard before. And so I think, you know, you, you do tend to take some of that home with you um, when you're working on your own songs. Um, but I don't think it was too too conscious. I, I, I think the idea of being more experimental uh, in general was a big part of 
of making the second album as opposed to, to the first one. There's a, there's a great track on there that kind of speaks to that with uh, Truth Serum, which ended up on the Avengers soundtrack as well. Uh, a bomb of a movie, a really good soundtrack. I know. But that, uh, that song, I mean, it's, there's such a cool laid-back feel to that. And, and, you know, this was also the era of, of trip-hop, I guess we should say. And I feel a little bit in that song as well. Uh, what do you remember about that one? Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. You know, it was it was because um, the verses are very, very groovy and kind of trip hoppy. Um, you know, George is great at, with those kind of beats, and then the chorus is very driving and, and very straight. So, um, you know, with big rock guitars and everything. So it was it was a nice. You know, I love stuff with contrast and switching gears and things like that. I think it really helps keep your your attention and you know County Blue Cars is very much like that it's very kind of dreamy you know verses that are kind of groovy and then the chorus is really big and powerful and driving so and, and you can you know you can really feel the gears change between the parts and um, I, I'm not a big fan of things that are too linear so yeah we definitely I think even in uh, Gone Upside Down has kind of a kind of a trip hop kind of beat to it even though it's when I wrote that I was listening to a lot of really really heavy heavy bands at the time so it's got a really chunky guitar riff thing mixed with that kind of trip-hop drum beat. Yeah, I, I mentioned that being tied to Avengers with True Serum. <laughs> I, I, look, I, was, I, was, I was going back and, God, I'd forgotten all about that movie, too, and, and hearing you know yeah. reviews call that one of the worst movies of all time, especially of the era. Is there right. a sense of being tied to that, or was like just being on the soundtrack still completely separate from whatever happens with a movie? Thank God we were, we were separate. I mean, you know, I, we've been on a lot of movies, but never one that bombed quite that badly. So that that was that was a bit tough. I was I was excited to be on a soundtrack. I was excited to have that song on a soundtrack. I was like, oh, cool! It's such a cool song. It's I don't know if this is a radio song or not, but perhaps it will be heard, and maybe it will be a radio song if the movie does well. And then seeing the movie and going, well, I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> But that, I mean, so that, you know, we'll move into the present a little bit because that became a big part of your life uh, after Dishwalla. Like, you have spent a lot of time scoring uh, and working in TVs and movies, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. It's funny. I'm actually working on songs for Baywatch right now. Wow. <laughs> How did that all that happen? How did you get into that side of the career? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I think perhaps just, well, part of it's probably doing it for a long time because that's where a lot of guys go. You know, Jeff Russo from Tonic has won quite a few Academy Awards or uh, maybe even a Grammy or two for, from doing from scoring like Star Trek to Fargo. So I think, you know, it when, you, when you're writing songs and you're soundscaping things out and you're really thinking about all those details, you start to learn how to, you know, create moods and, and it, it translates really well to, to doing movies. And a movie that I had, had acted in in around 2001, a movie called um, Morning, it was directed by Amy Kanan Mann and her father is Michael Mann, the very famous mm -hmm. film director. Mm -hmm. so, so it was a big production, and she'd hired this guy that, to score the film, and he was a huge film score, and she hated it. And so the, right at the last, uh, like, 11th hour, she calls me up and says, hey, can you score this thing for me? <laughs> so I was like, uh, how much time do I have? She's like, you've got a few days, you know, to score a whole film. So pulled it all together. But that was kind of the beginning of me actually really thinking about film. And, and uh, so, you know, here I am still doing it. Yeah, we've seen you, you know, of course, uh, you worked in How I Met Your Mother in and out through its seasons, and they end up using the band name, calling it out a few times. I mean, that's yes. kind of be cool yes, to be of that yes. part of pop culture. No, it, it, it's so cool, you know, and they, when they were putting the, the episode together, they would literally, you know, call me and be like, okay, Gerald, we need 
a version of Kenny Blue Cars that's a dreamy version for a dreamy sequence, and or you know we need one that's that's like a, a jukebox version that's you know, and, and then we need you know an actual album version and studio version. So I was I ended up writing all these different versions for the uh, for the show. Unfortunately, they didn't use them all, but um, but that's how those things go. They when they're writing, you know, their things are constantly changing it, and uh, yeah, they were kind of using me as a as a tool, like hey, can you come up with this? And I was like, sure, no problem, I'll go for it. That's cool. So you mentioned Baywatch. I mean, is there anything else that we should be uh, looking out for uh, at the moment on, on that side of things? <laughs> um, not too much. I mean, I'm doing that. I have a couple other things going that I'm, I'm not allowed to talk about until they're official, mm-hmm. I guess. But and, and hopefully I'll be able to talk about them. It means that they're they're going ahead with it, which is cool. But there's, I think you spend a lot of time writing and working on things kind of on spec in hopes that you know, the, the show will get picked up or the movie will go forward or your song will get used. But you have to be hush-hush about it in the meantime. Right. And and then I'm, I'm also working on a I'm working on a covers album, believe it or not, cause, uh, um, which will be my third solo, fourth, fourth solo album, and then uh, as well as, a, as another studio album, uh, which will be my fifth. So I'm, I'm busy working on, on that. Yeah, right now and you've well. you've been doing it sort of on the uh, is it a subscription service is what it looks like on the website, right? Yeah, I mean that's you know the world has changed, so it's it's like I, I have people that have have enjoyed Dishwaller or my solo stuff, helping you know kind of being my label. You know they're they're a huge part of it, and they get and yeah, it's 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 so weird, <laughs> but it's it is you know the the kind of new age of. That's how artists operate these these days in order to afford to keep you know making music. So, because getting record deals is, is is harder to come by these days, and you, you lose so much of your control as well as a lot of you know the percentage of the dollar that you might make. So it actually makes sense um, to to do much of it on your own, which you can do. And uh, subscription service is a really cool way to go. And then you make it really interesting for the people who are into your music. You know, they get to hear music way before anybody else does. Help you make decisions, hear things that nobody will ever hear, and uh, really be much more a part of of, of the process because I, I do updates and videos my like my, my wife's a film director so she helps me put together some pretty amazing uh, video updates and things like that so it's that's that's what's literally making it possible for, for me to keep going it's amazing and I felt really odd doing it first and because I, I did my third album that I wanted to do, my sorry my second solo album I did on a pledge music music campaign which is basically a crowdfunding way of raising money for for an album and you know I, I figured out how much I would need and and ended up raising more than twice that and so I did two albums um, on that covers record uh, is it a is there a theme to it uh, or, or, or is it just like favorite songs it's just it really is just like favorite songs of mine and although again with that subscription service I call it the green room that's what I call it uh, a lot uh, probably half the album's going to be songs they chose oh cool so any odd yeah. ones that, are they throwing like any challenges at you like you've got to do Whatever you know, whatever it would be. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, they throw they've thrown some hard ones my way. I mean, you know, I, I, I mean, they threw me close to a hundred actually in in a couple of days. So I was going through and seeing, you know, how many times because some of the titles were obviously were, were suggested more than once, and and then trying to, you know, for the most part, I knew all the songs and going through all of them, trying to figure out if I can do these songs justice. So as long as I can, uh, I mean, I'll probably wheedle it down, but I will pull from the list that I got from from my my subscribers and and do four or five of those yeah. <laughs> and yeah there's definitely some weird ones i mean there's like broadway show tunes and weird obscure artists that i've never heard of before you know 
but but all all fantastic stuff. It's just trying to figure out if I can do it, you know, do it justice. I, do, I mean, are, do you want to tell us any of the names that we would know, or is that still going to be uh, kept under wraps until until it's time? Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple. I mean, like um, I'm doing uh, with without you by you two, um, Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers, yeah. uh, House House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. To, I guess that's that's a few there. Yeah. I can't think of what else. Oh, that's cool. Well, I look forward to that. So, uh, when, when, when should we uh, maybe expect these? Uh, this one and, and possibly the uh, the follow up as well. Yeah. Well, the, the covers record should be done in a couple months tops. I think that'll be out, and then hopefully a couple months after that, I'll have the other album done. It might take a little bit longer. Depends. I'm looking at at, at doing a tour in November and some of October right now. So some of October, and November. So it depends on, on how much time I have to sit in the studio. <laughs> that's always the thing, man. Time management. That's, yeah. Uh, that's it. Well, JR, uh, thank you, man. Uh, I, I look forward to all that. Uh, thank you for taking the time, and especially, you know, going back down memory lane for the, uh, and you think you know what life's about record. It's uh, it's cool to, to kind of get the backstory on that one as it's, you know, like I said, that spotlight's been on that one a little bit less. So I appreciate it. Oh, no, I appreciate you shining some light on it. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, take care and uh, and let us know when the uh, when the new records come out. We'll be uh, we'll be watching for them. All right, man. I'll, I'll reach out to you when it's uh, when it's out. All right, I appreciate I'll, it. I'll shoot it, out, shoot it out to you. You bet, man. All right. All right. Take hey, care. Thanks so much, Jeff. Bye. You too. Right. Thanks to J.R. Richards there, formerly of Dishwalla, talking about the old days and the upcoming days. And again, my thanks to uh, Blind Melon and Cracker. For all of the fun today, don't forget you can subscribe to Consequence of Sounds at YouTube channel to keep up with your favorite artists and interviews. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, iTunes, Podchaser, or wherever you get your uh, podcast from, uh, go ahead and leave a rating and a review and subscribe there as well. Then you can head over to WFPK.org. That's where you'll hear me do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. You'll also find some bonus episodes of this series over there. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network.